Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Ministries International. We value the Word of God as an instrument of growth in our lives, using it to mend our ways, align our thinking, and ultimately bring restoration. We trust that you will be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. Hi everyone again. It's good to be with you no matter what time zone you're in. And I want to carry on. Michael Weiss uh, shared a, a great message with us last week, and he challenged us to renew our wineskins to allow for the new wine of Christ to be poured in us and through us. Well, I might be going with the flow here, but today I'm going to share on a different type of, of, of drink, an original thirst-quenching, sustaining, and life-giving drink. My, my daughter's favorite, water. Now, now you look at this bottle of water and that's how many of us try and drink if we don't have good tap water in our homes. We drink bottled water and this doesn't really do justice to the water analogy and metaphor that we're going to be unpacking today. You see, it's not just any water, but specifically the water Jesus offers on two occasions in the gospel according to John. And I'm going to be speaking about living water today. And I will use these two occasions as, as literal book, bookends in my message. We're going to start with one gospel occasion where Jesus offers living water, and we're going to end on another occasion where Jesus offers living water or prophesies over the pouring out of living water in the gospel according to John. On each occasion, it's important to understand Jesus just doesn't pull that word then and there. He taps into the rich Hebrew and biblical imagery of living water. And I felt it fitting that we need to first explore this biblical understanding to set the scene. So to do so, I'm going to be quoting one of my favorite. Uh, she's become a big influence in me when in my studies I based my thesis around a lot of her writing. And it's, it's Lois Tiverberg. It's a weird surname, T-V-E-R-B-E-R-G. And she studies the significance of Hebrew roots and the meaning of scripture. And she gives an amplification when we understand the context and the time and the Hebrew richness of the text to then allow us to absorb even more. And this is what she says on living water. I quote, from Genesis to Revelation, the metaphor and theme of living water is prominent. In the Middle East, water is scarce and precious and very much needed for survival. Only a few months of the year does rain fall in Israel. And the rest of the time, the ancient peoples survived on stagnant water that was stored in cisterns in the ground. Now, cisterns, we would classify today as reservoirs built man-made built reservoirs to catch and store rainwater or, or water that would be poured in there. She continues, living water refers to water in the form of rain or flowing from a natural spring, which has come directly from God, not carried by human hands or stored in cisterns. It also is a cons contrast to seawater, especially that of the Dead Sea. And that's an important imagery in Hebrew narrative. The Dead Sea, which obviously, because of its high salt content, it was almost poisonous and things couldn't live. It was a barren 
uh, a sea. Living water was strongly associated with the presence of God. And that's what we're going to focus on today. Living water was strongly associated with the presence of God. Many times in scripture, God is called the source of living water. Now, this is, I said my daughter likes water. This is hers. She got it today. And I'm sure you guys have seen a bottle of still water quite often. What I find interesting on the bottle, it says here, still spring water. Now, after today, you'll see that's quite an oxymoron. How can water that is still be also spring or living or in Hebrew, alive, rushing, moving water at the same time? And that's because they call it spring water because it's bottled at the source. And a lot of you will know that they say at the bottle, bottled at the source. And the source is a spring. And that's what we're talking about today. When we say living water, it's gushing, flowing, alive water springing up or a spring. And this is what we're going to unpack this metaphor that Jesus taps into through the biblical narrative and that he promises and prophesies over us. What's important to know, living water is alive and running and it flows from the pure source of life and that's God himself. He is the spring, he is the fountain of living water. He is the source. He is the beginning point of this water. Like I said, in a natural spring in ancient times, he continuously gushes out this life-sustaining pure water, the never-ending gushing and flowing of living water. So let's start with our first bookend in the Gospel of John. And let's start with, the, with John chapter 4. You can turn there with me on your devices or your Bibles, and we will flow through the biblical narrative from there. We're going to start with the Gospel of John, and we're going to take a biblical tour through some poignant scriptures about living water. But let's start with Jesus, and we will end with Jesus. John 4, that chapter records that Jesus has left Judea and was on his way back to Galilee. And you'll know he stopped at a town in Samaria, and he was in a field where Jacob had given his son Joseph. And indeed, he found himself at a source of water. He found himself at Jacob's well. He was weary. He was thirsty from his journey, the chapter tells us. And he asked the only person around, a Samaritan woman, for a drink from the well. Now, I'm not going to unpack the cultural breakthrough that Jesus does here by requesting water not just from a woman, but a Samaritan woman at that. You can just note by a response which says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And it said there, author's footnote, for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Now, we all you need to know is they did not like each other one bit and didn't have any interaction or limited interaction if it wasn't wanting the other to cause harm. All right. Let's put that aside. Let's focus on Jesus' response, his offering of a different kind of water from another source altogether. I'm reading from verse 10 to 15 from the English Standard Version. John 4, verse 10 to 15. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, 
he gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his son and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, obviously pointing to the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him, listen to this, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, if you know the Gospel of John, which I'm sure all of you do, you know that this type of conversation is synonymous with both Jesus and John's recording of Jesus's conversations. What do I mean by that? Just like Nicodemus in the early parts of John, this is another conversation of ambiguity, where Jesus is tapping into a deeper metaphor on a deeper level than the person that he's in discussion with is at first at least unable to grasp. You see, Jesus starts with physical thirst. He is physically thirsty and he seeks physical water. But then all of a sudden, when the woman is a bit shocked at the request, he flips the script and he correctly identifies that this woman and all of humanity at that stage were spiritually thirsty, that they were all parched and they all needed a drink. But not of a water from the well, not of physical water, but of his living perpetual presence, the water of his presence. You see, the Samaritan woman misses this at first and understands Jesus's offer for water as physical. She expects physical water from a physical source to quench her physical thirst. And note her answer, it's quite important to answer back to Jesus where she says, are you greater than our father, Jacob, who dug this well? See, water from a culturally traditional ways, she was looking to source that kind of water. Water that she knew, that she experienced, that she expected. Water from her culture and her background. Water from her father, Jacob. Not yet knowing the very person and Jesus himself standing beside her promising and offering a different kind of water altogether. Jesus said, the water that I will give him, the person who asks, who is thirsty, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The level that Jesus was talking for on a metaphorical theme, an allegory, a parable, if you will, Jesus was talking about a separated spiritual state of this Samaritan woman but also representing the greater Israel and humanity as a whole. Before Jesus, before the pouring out of his living water, we were dry, we were parched, and we were still living in the desert of this world. We were thirsty for the Lord's presence to return, and so were they. They were thirsty for the Lord's presence to return and them to return back to him. You see, Israel, and humanity have, had left their first love. They turned their backs on the water source, the spring of living water, and they pursued self. And you know I say this all the time, <laughs> because that's what humanity does. Left to our own devices, we will always choose what we know best, what man's ways are, and we will choose self over the Lord. And that's why he came to do what we could not. Now, let me go back into the old covenant to the book of Jeremiah. And we're going to read 
in one verse a prophecy of Israel and Jerusalem's ultimate. Now, to understand the context of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is on the scene of Israel and Jerusalem's ultimate destructions at the hand of Babylon and results in their exile. But the question I'm asking, which we probably know already, but let's unpack it, is, is why? What happened? What went wrong with these covenant people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? What happened to the people of David? Were they not in their promised land? Was the temple not finally built with Solomon and the Lord inhabiting the tabernacle in the presence? What happened to these people that were, were given and delivered into their promised land and they were living in what they thought was peace and happiness and prosperity and peace? Well, Jeremiah 2.13 tells us in a very concise, short way. Jeremiah 2.13 from the English Standard Version. This is the Lord speaking through the prophet Jeremiah in, in this context of Babylonian exile and Jerusalem falling. For my people have committed two evils, the Lord says. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Let's stop and pause there on those two aspects because Jesus has two evils. They're not one and the same. Firstly, they have forsaken him. They've forsaken the fountain of living waters. You need to stay in the metaphor. You need to understand in Middle Eastern dry, arid country where water is life. Those of us who in Cape Town and experienced a drought a few years ago, those of us in the rest of the country or, or continents who are experiencing drought will tell you how important water is and how in the modern world we quickly forget because we turn on a tap and there it is, living, pouring water. But when that day zero approached us in Cape Town, we understood water was precious and should be kept. Now, I, I don't know how grievous and how dangerous the water supply is in Israel, but I, I would say in ancient times, it probably was worse than what we had in closing into day zero. Water was a precious resource and still is today. So when he says in the metaphor, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, instead of residing by me as a spring, relying on me and my presence and my sustenance. They, they turned their backs on me. They ran away. They chose themselves. And here's the second point. They dug out. They dug man-made reservoirs for themselves. What their way of understanding, what they think they know about life, what they want to pursue and what they want to know as truth. And if they, when they dug it out, the brutal reality is, they dug out failed, broken reservoirs that had no hope to hold real water. They had no hope to hold physical water, never mind the living water from the source of God. You see, Jeremiah tells us in his book that Israel broke the covenant with the Lord. In three points, we know they worshipped other gods. And through his book, he identifies idolatry as a form of, as a form of adultery. They started worshiping other gods, and we know that's a break in the covenant. Secondly, they followed corrupt leaders. They had corrupt priests, they had corrupt kings, and they had corrupt prophets. And in this corruption, they also, in the third point, enacted in rampant social injustice. In other words, they inflicted suffering on the helpless, the widows, the orphans, and the immigrants. Folks, when we, when society gets to a point 
when the helpless are becoming victims to injustice, then we understand the state of our hearts, a society as a whole. When widows and orphans and immigrants, those that should be kept protected, and the Lord has always ensured in his covenant that these helpless should remain protected, even if they are unable to protect themselves. When society gets to that level, we can see the complete collapse of the covenant this Israel nation had with the Lord. And like I said, the, the Lord in Jeremiah is, is assimilating himself as the fountain of living waters. That is the metaphor. It's almost Psalm 1-like. If you remember a few messages ago that I, I read to you Psalm 1, and that's a very well-known psalm, not just today, but throughout all biblical history. You see, Israel was planted by the Psalm Eden streams of the Lord. They were enjoying his constant presence and his supply, not just for the blessing, but for who he is. And that Psalm 1 imagery of a tree planted by living waters or streams, like a river, which speaks of living, rushing water. You see the fruit and the vegetation that grows from that. But instead, like we said, they walked away from these banks. They walked away from the Lord as their source. They worshiped themselves instead. And like we said, they dug out reservoirs, cisterns for themselves, of themselves. That's key. They didn't just do the digging. They dug of themselves for themselves. They worshipped their own ways, their man-made ways, their ways of understanding. They man-made futile ways of capturing, storing, and drinking water. No longer living waters, but now dead waters. Stagnant, polluted, and broken by selfishness. Quick context on reservoirs in those ancient times. They struggled to build these reservoirs and it was never perfect because either there was any flaw, mud or any impurity would come in and pollute that water or the any flaw in that building, water would seep out. So often a picture of this reservoir didn't look appetizing. It wasn't fresh. It wasn't clean. It wasn't clear. It was muddied. It was, it was just polluted and brackish water. Stagnant water already is dangerous, but polluted stagnant water is far more so. So this is, represents what they were trying to do in their own ways. The ultimately, Jeremiah talks about the ultimate pollution of the Lord's temple. And Ezekiel 11 shows that the Lord is forced out of his own home, his own temple presence through their pollution, through their breaking of the covenant. And without the Lord, the Israelites are broken and they're not even able to source any water like we said, never mind his. And we know the ultimate destruction of the physical temple. Now the temple void of the Lord's presence and Jerusalem itself is completely destroyed and the nation is completely exiled into Babylon. Now, why am I talking about this history? Well, it's in this exiled arid desert situation, which is all too familiar for the Israelites, all too familiar for the humanity state without the Lord. In this exiled arid state, the Lord does what he always does. He speaks hope. He speaks hope in the wilderness and in the barren lands. He promises his living waters will once again return and it will once again emanate from him as the source and it will emanate from his returning true temple this time. And that speaks of Jesus. This message of hope is near the end of another prophetic book recorded around the same time of Israel's Babylonian exile. And that's Ezekiel 47. Now, so many prophets prophetic things we could read, but I've only selected a few. Turn to Ezekiel 47, because 
here Ezekiel, or the Lord through Ezekiel, points to this hope, a hope that we ourselves are already on the other side of the banks, that we are already immersed in, we are already swept up in, and we are already gushing towards the new earth's rebirth. In one of Ezekiel's prophetic visions, and this is after the Valley of the Dry Bones, this is after all his visions, it's near the end of the, of the book, the Lord takes him back to a temple that is detailed quite, if you will see a few chapters, he's detailed this temple to image and reflect Eden imagery, delight, and we know in Genesis 2 that Eden is burst through with waters. The Lord takes Ezekiel back to the temple, a temple as it was always meant to be. And I'm going to be reading verse 1 from the voice translation, Ezekiel 47 from the voice. Then the man whose appearance was like bronze led me back to the temple's entryway. There I observed a stream of water bubbling up from beneath the temple threshold, flowing eastward in the same direction the temple faced. The water was running parallel to the temple's wall south of the altar. The, the voice puts a footnote here. They say, this flowing, running, living water cleanses, heals, and restores everything in its path. And that's key. Note where the water stems from. It comes from the temple. It comes from the Lord. And it's alive. And it's flowing like a babbling stream, a fountain gushing forth. But also note, if you will read down through Ezekiel 47, note how the it starts as a trickle. It starts with a little gush. But the water strangely increases in volume and in depth as it works its way outward. It's quite unique, isn't it? The further out it gets through the temple courts and it goes through the temple's architecture and it goes out beyond into the surrounds, it starts getting greater in measurement. And you'll see the cubits, they measure quite detailed there. It goes from ankle, it goes to knee, it goes to waist, it goes deep over Ezekiel's head where he can't even swim within the vast depths of this now river. He is now caught up and swept up in a river. And let's read the second portion of 6 and 7 and verse 12 from the voice. So he's on this river, he's been swept up in this river, and the Lord plucks him back, and the guide says, and then he says, then my guide brought me back to the river's bank, to the river's edge. When we got there, I looked and saw orchards along both sides of the river. Verse 12, all kinds of trees will flourish along both sides of the river. Their leaves won't wither. Their fruit won't fail. Every month they will bear a fresh crop of fruit because they are nourished from the water that flows from the temple sanctuary. Their fruit will be food and their leaves will be for healing. Folks, that is Psalm 1. That is Eden imagery. And that is imagery that you will see over and over again throughout the biblical narrative. It's speaking of us being restored to the banks of the living waters of our father of Psalm 1. Like I said in my is he is not only the water, he's everything, but we are restored to that point through Jesus. Now, let's return to the second book end in the Gospel of John, because this is the same reality that Ezekiel 47 speaks of. This is the same invitation that Jesus speaks of in the Gospel of John. And I spoke about temple for a reason. Because you need to understand the significance that when Jesus steps into now in John chapter 7, his second, his second prophesying and, and invitation and promise of living waters happens in this second temple, empty temple, 
void of the Lord's presence. Ironically, Jesus, the Lord himself, the source of living water, returns to the sham temple, this brick and mortar alone temple, and he prophesies the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. That is the living water. That is how we experience him as the source and the living water. And he promises the Holy Spirit to all who are thirsty. Now, you, you're there, John 7. But just before we read it, I'm going to do what I love to do. And I'm going to unpack the contextual scene for you once again so you can understand and amplify the significance of what Jesus was saying, where he said it, and why it was so impactful. John 7 tells us in the beginning that Jesus was at the temple during the feasts of booths. If you turn to John 7, it would have said there on the top of your Bible, the feasts of booths, the feast of tabernacles, the feast of tents. Now, what is that for us folk that don't know? Let me quickly read Leviticus 23, which initiated this festival and this feast. Leviticus 23, verse 42 and 43. The Lord saying to, to Israel, you shall dwell in booths or tents for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, tents or tabernacles that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So basically, quickly, without going into too detail, the festival or the Feast of Booths is where Israel commemorated and remembered what the Lord instructed them to do, that they stayed in a tent. They constructed a tent, whether they had a physical home or not, and they stayed outside in that tent for seven days to remember their forefathers and their, their generations before them that stayed in the desert and the Lord looked after them in the desert while they didn't have a roof over their head, but just a tent. Let me read you a quote from Precept Austin. He says, and this is just one aspect of this feast. There's many things, but obviously today I'm talking about living water. This is what Precept Austin says. One reason for the feast was to celebrate God's provision, God's good provision, of living water during the 40 years of the wilderness wanderings. Now, we know deserts. Imagine staying in a desert for 40 years. There were hardly any water, never mind living water, in the desert wilderness. Jews enacted various rituals associated to God's provision during the festival or the Feast of Booths, like we said, for the seven days. Well, what about regarding the supply of living water? What they would do in the temple, remembering in the Feast of Booths, they would draw living water, running water, from a pool or a spring, which came from a spring, so it needed to be running living water. They would draw, the priest would draw running water from the spring, and they would celebratory, joyously transport this water back up the hill to the temple mount, through the water gate, to the temple priest who poured it out on the altar. They drew up that living water and they poured it out almost reenacting the Lord bringing water from a rock, which we know Moses struck instead of spoke to, where the Lord provided water when they were thirsty in the wilderness. They reenacted the Lord has provided water in the past, and they looked to it as a promising prophetic act that he will once again bring water back to his people, that true living water. Now, you understand the context. Jesus is at this festival, and it's very important that John's opening statement in John 7:37, he, he states it there. On the last day of the feast, the great day. Now there's debates whether water was poured out or not, but they celebrated and they definitely spoke about water there. 
So either water was being poured or there was a strangely, after doing it for seven days or the eighth day, whatever, there may not have been water. Either way, at that water moment, Jesus stood up and cried. And this is the time that Jesus prophesies. See, Jesus steps into this water temple scene and he cries out to a dry, to a parched, to a thirsty Israel. Under Roman occupation, under oppression, under slavery, still living in the wilderness of this world. They're not experiencing the Shekinah presence of the Lord, the manifest presence, not experiencing his sustainable water. They are still lacking the true living water. And this is what Jesus says in verse 37 and 38. We read 37 when John says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. And this is what Jesus says. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, John doesn't stop there like the Samaritan woman. In the very next verse, he gives an author's note. I love these when these uh, biblical authors do that for us after the fact. They give context to Jesus' words, which they may not have caught in the moment, but they got understanding through the experience of certain events in the process of time. And John gives us this author's note in verse 39. He said, now this Jesus said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And glorified speaks of being lifted up onto the cross. John makes it very clear that Jesus was speaking about the pouring out of his spirit, the Pentecost moment. John reveals Jesus' metaphor of living water as the spring and the stream of the spirit. How we encounter his living fountain, his living waters, how we experience his babbling alive presence. Through the pouring out of the person of, of the spirit at Pentecost, Jesus and the Lord fulfill the promise. Of this returning living water first to the thirsty upper room those in the upper room and then to the ends of the earth just like in ezekiel's vision where it exploded out from the temple from the upper room now the temple is not just jesus but it is his his body his true temple is now the brothers and sisters in christ they experience this living water and it gushes out from there and we know the book of Acts shows how it just explodes and pours out from that moment those in the upper room and beyond, they drink in the water that the Lord gives them and it doesn't just pool up and it isn't just stored within them. And this is important. This is what I would like to conclude with. You see, my challenge for myself and I share with you is that when we receive this living water, that we don't just are content to keep it within, that we store it up. Like, like Jeremiah tells us, that we, we hew cisterns, stagnant, we just want to keep it for ourselves. We just want to make sure it's safe and we keep it as a reservoir. No, that's not what living waters are. It needs and it becomes a spring. Jesus speaks about a spring of living water welling up from within us. Now springs, fountains and rivers are ever flowing. They never run dry. It's not only about the connection to the source of the living water, but also the constant pouring out from that source. We need a pouring in but I dare say we need a pouring out. This is what characterizes water as being living, as being alive, being running. 
it shouldn't have an end point. It shouldn't have a dam point where we dam it up. It shouldn't have a reservoir restriction of water prevented from being shed out. Note Jesus' words in John 7. He said, out, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. When we drink Jesus in and his spirit, out of the heart, out of our hearts, out of his heart as the source, our hearts too will flow rivers of living water because we will pour him out. The gushing, the bursting, and the constant running nature of living water is experienced and expressed when we share it outwardly. Our worship with the Father has much to do with us pouring out his goodness around us as it does with us marveling and bathing in his goodness. This is something as the Israelites have before and humanity constantly forgets. Folks, like I said, we are on the other side of the banks of the Ezekiel 47 prophecy. We are on the other side of the bookends of John 4 and John 7, Jesus' fulfillment. We have experienced and we are experiencing the pouring out of his spirit. And we are free to drink him in, to swim in his depths, and to share him unselfishly with everyone around us. My encouragement to you today is to just explore and to swim in like Ezekiel, to drink him in and to not seek to dig a dam with our own hands, to not restrict his presence from flowing out of us. See, a lot of us accurately would say, yes, they went to idols and they did things in their own ways, like I've said. But where does that begin? Where does that, that slippery slope of humanity begin to start looking left and right instead of focusing on the Lord. It begins when all we're interested is with ourselves, when all we're interested with that living water is that us and us four are kept safe and are fine. And when we do that, we start walling up the presence. We start reservoiring who he is. And the last words I will share with you is the inflow will always match the outflow. I'm sure Michael Weiss said this last week. If we require more of the Spirit's flow in our lives, we need to increase his flow out of our lives. Thank you for listening to this message. For additional resources or more information about this ministry, come and visit us at alphaomegaint.org.za.